today's lesson is taken from the book of Zechariah, chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are people who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of, the land, of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite their neighbor to come under their vine and under their fig tree. The word of the Lord. Our readings from the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, 14 to chapter 5, verse 10. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of the people in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward because he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. pray with me. Father, let us 
by your spirit live as a kingdom of priests unto you, who bear witness to the kingdom of your Son, who is forever our great high priest in heaven before you. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, so, so far in the visions of Zechariah, the, the prophet has only seen glimpses of the things uh, to come in his own dimension on earth in the land of Palestine. But then here, something's different. Uh, in our reading, Zechariah is now transported up into heaven. Now he sees a fourth vision. Now, unlike the previous visions that needed an angel to explain them, Zechariah actually sees something that is now very clear, that's very understandable to him as a Jew concerning what is to come for his people. It was very self-evident to what he saw. So let's look at the vision together. You could grab a Bible or an app. You could grab a pew Bible in front of you. It's in page 984. We're in Zechariah chapter 3. So in, in the vision, this is the fourth one that he saw, Zechariah. Now he got to sit in as an audience member in a heavenly courtroom trial. There he recognizes the defendant. He saw him as Joshua, the, the ruling high priest at the time in Jerusalem. Now Joshua stood accused not only for himself, but being the chief priest of Jerusalem, he also represented all of the Jewish people, whether in all throughout the Persian Empire or those living now in Palestine. So Joshua stood before the angel of Yahweh, who was acting as the chief magistrate on behalf of the crown, or behalf of God. Uh, we know this because the angel of Yahweh was the main speaker, and then he ended up giving the final sentencing in the end. Okay, but then Zechariah sees another figure beside Joshua, a mysterious figure. That's called in the Hebrew the Satan, that is translated the accuser. Satan is actually not a name, as it's popularly misunderstood. It's not a name. Satan is a title. It's a, de a designation of a being who brings accusations against God's people. And as the name suggests, he slanders them in front of God. So Zechariah sees the Satan, the devil, standing at the right hand of Joshua. That's the place where witnesses would stand to bring about their charge. And the devil is not actually levying here false charges. He's not lying anything, bringing any lies against Joshua and Israel, but real charges. These are true charges. Joshua's guilt and the guilt of Israel is symbolized with the filthy garments, the filthy clothes representing their disobedience and unfaithfulness to the covenant of God throughout the years for many, many generations. They're just caked in it, soiled with sin. In a way, the devil here is actually acting as a crown witness, siding with God, demanding that justice be truly be inflicted and carried out against Israel. Joshua did not stand a chance. There was no chance. His guilt and the guilt of his people were evident to all of heaven in front of the devil, in front of Zechariah, in front of God. Guilty conviction is inevitable. But to the surprise of Zechariah, to the surprise of all the angels of heaven, looking on, God reprimands the devil. In verse 2, we hear the only direct line that God ever says in the vision. He's speaking in the third person very, very weirdly. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. 
See, though the devil seemed to be in God's best interest for justice to be dealt with, the devil was really about the destruction of Israel and so bringing disrepute to the name of God for not keeping his word, not keeping his promises that he gave to Israel a long time ago. Because should Joshua or Israel be condemned, that would have ultimately made God out to be a liar. He could not save them from Egypt, but he destroyed them through the desert. God rebuked the devil, and he stands now to advocate for Joshua. It's not Joshua, a brand plucked from the fire. Picture a popsicle stick being quickly snatched out from a raging bonfire, from the heart of a bonfire. The stick still smoldering in a blaze, but rescued from being utterly consumed. Israel was a burning branch ablaze in the furnace of exile, but not completely incinerated. At the right time, it was God who snatched her out of the furnace of judgment. This was a surprising turn in a trial. It, everyone was surprised. It, Joshua would have been guilty, should have been condemned. But God the judge became Joshua's counsel, his legal counsel, his advocate. And he shuts the devil up. So after hearing now the closing arguments from both God and the devil, the angel of Yahweh is left to give his final verdict. In verse 4, the angel then instructs the officers of, in heaven in the court to remove Joshua's dirty clothes. And as though he were God, the angel declares unto Joshua, See, I've taken your sins away, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. The angel exonerates Joshua and invests him with priestly garments, restoring him back to his office of high priest. Now so far in the vision, we don't know how the angel could legally pardon Joshua, except only by divine fiat. That is because God said so, because I said so. I forgive you. You're exonerated. You are released. You're acquitted. As all this was happening in front of him, Zechariah was so moved by the incredibly surprising and hopeful conclusion to the trial that he blurts out an idea to the heavens in the courtroom in verse 5. Zechariah suggests, could you put a turban on Joshua, a clean one? Put it on his head was prescribed long ago that by Moses for the high priest to wear a turban as he carried out his duties. So Joshua gets fully decked out. He's vested in heaven before the angel of Yahweh, before heaven, signaling also that Israel now has been fully restored to once again be a kingdom of priests once out of exile. A people who will again carry out their mediatory executive power to Give out the blessings and promises of heaven to earth. So Joshua gets this complete makeover. <laughs> then the angel of Yahweh recommissions him in verse 7. Thus says the Lord, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, you will rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I'll give you the right access among those who are standing here. God gives Israel another chance. He stipulates that should they walk in obedience, they will be the executors of his holy estate and they will have free, unlimited access to his presence like the angels of heaven do. 
This was the vision that Zechariah saw concerning the things to come for his people. That was very self-evident. No, no explanation needed. That was clear. The vision meant for him and his people that the exile has ended. It is done. God's judgment has finished. That covenant with Abraham, with David, with Moses is being renewed at last. For the Jewish remnant who would have heard this vision, who understood the exile to be the fruit of the sins of their ancestors, this vision would have been incredibly, unbelievably reassuring. God has declared absolute forgiveness. God has purified them from the mire, from the smoke, from the soot of exile. God is reestablishing that covenant with them and giving them a chance for a do-over. Zechariah totally knew what this vision was all about. Now the question for us is, what could this vision mean for us today as Christians in Toronto, as followers of Jesus? What could this mean? Now in the New Testament, the church is called a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests who mediate and execute the blessings and promises of heaven into earth in the name of Jesus. As uh, the vision of Zechariah illustrates, the basis of actually our, our contemporary priestly ministry is founded upon our first being forgiven, being clothed and vested by God, and being commissioned by God. As Christians, we cannot even step into fulfilling our priestly ministry unless we are first forgiven Reconciled to God, vested by God, commissioned by God. All right, all that sounds religious. What does that even mean? I mean, let me illustrate it with a story. Once upon a time, there was a girl who loved to play with her shoelaces while she wore her shoes. The girl's father warned her not to tie her shoelaces so tightly because she wouldn't be able to loosen them at one point. Now, one day, the girl tied the laces from both her shoes together so tightly that she wasn't able to walk. She would trip and fall, and she tried many times to loosen the knot, but she couldn't. The knot was very tight. So she cried out for her father, and her father ran to her and got down to the ground where she lay, and her father loosened the knot. The girl thanked the father, and as she was about to go out and play, her father said to her, Now you know how to loosen a knot. I've shown you. I've loosened your knot. Now on your way, see other kids with knotted shoelaces. You can now help them too. You can help them along the way. Now that's my attempt at a children's storybook. But, but as far as the story illustrates, we as Christians cannot go out to the world and proclaim God's good news of the forgiveness of sins unless we ourselves have received forgiveness of the same. We are never free to run and fulfill our priestly ministry until God loosens our shoelaces that we so often bind together by mistake or intentionally. Shoes in our shoelaces. Sorry, shoelaces in our shoes from the knot of sin, unshackled from the chains that bind us in guilt and shame. We need to be released from bondage and slavery and unleashed to go 
and do likewise in the world. All right, like all this talk of sin, guilt, shame, and forgiveness, I understand that there is a long, there's a long history in the church of a persistent proclivity to spiritually and emotionally bludgeon our own members with their own traumas, dysfunctions, and moral failings. We've perhaps done this to ourselves or to others. It's our way of copying the Satan, our way of accusing others, accusing ourselves, controlling, manipulating, gaslighting people into religious submission. We beat up ourselves. We beat up other people. Part of the church still has an extreme preoccupation with people's moral performance and victims are still getting beat down by Christians and religious leaders with a hardcover Bible in their hand. In and despite this grim reality of the church for which we must be sorry and repent and ask for forgiveness. I want to be clear that the Bible's teaching, and I humbly say this, is unequivocal. That we and everyone else are sinners. We are sinners, all of us. Sinners who bear evil and wrongs for which to be forgiven, whether unintentionally or intentionally. Even we ourselves harbor the sins of others on which we must are called to forgive. Because we stand as moral creatures in desperate need to be reconciled to God and with one another in desperate need to be forgiven and to forgive, in desperate need even to forgive ourselves. Because we are creatures that have been endowed by God with his own divine dignity and his own divine capacity to render moral choices and judgment, having now the knowledge of good and evil. See, in our Western culture, we tend to medicate psychologize, pathologize, and therapize human behavior and inclinations. But the church must be different. We must be wise. We must be prophetic, truthful, gentle, loving to call what is evil what is evil, what is good as good, all the while partaking and promoting better research and access to mental health resources, counseling, and medication. We are all for that. But let us be clear with the message of the gospel. There is perfect forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ, and all we must be forgiven of our sins. For only then can we be agents of reconciliation and ambassadors of his forgiveness to pronounce absolution in the name of Jesus Christ unto them who repent and confess of their wrongs one to one another, and unto God ultimately. Just as Joshua could not be again high priest until his clothes were removed and he was vested by God, we as Christians cannot be priests of the kingdom of God until we are forgiven, clothed, vested, and commissioned by God. Now going back to Joshua's trial... I mentioned, I mentioned earlier that there was no legal justification for God to pardon Joshua. Because Joshua was rightfully guilty. Just as it was for the Jews as it is for us today, it's unacceptable. It's unacceptable to forgive sins 
unless the guilty paid the penalty. How could God simply forgive Joshua? If our judges and juries did the same thing today, we would call our legal system corrupt. How could God just forgive sin? There's more to Zechariah's vision. In verse 8, Zechariah overhears the angel of Yahweh declassifying heavenly information here. He's now unveiling this heavenly mystery to Joshua. And this is what he hears. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, that is the priests, associate priests with him, they are a people who are a sign, an omen. They are a symbol of what is to come. He's saying that what happened to Joshua in heaven by association to Israel, that trial was a sign, an omen of what is to come. That is, an, the instantaneous forgiveness and restoration of Israel is a sign of what God will do to the world. And in verse 8, Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. What is going on here? The angel here was borrowing prophetic language from over 200 years ago from Isaiah. Because Isaiah foretold of a branch that will spring forth from a sawed-off branch, the stump of Jesse from David, out of exile. The Messiah, the Messiah will actually come out of brokenness, will come out of exile. And on that day, God will lay a stone with seven eyes with an inscription before Joshua. What is up with this freaky-looking stone? See, God here is describing an image of someone setting up a foundation of a house or a temple. The stone being laid here is a foundation stone or a cornerstone that has seven eyes. But in the Hebrew, it actually can say that it has seven faces or seven sides to it. The number seven is associated with God because it symbolizes perfection, completeness, completeness it is finished. So typically, the architect of a building will inscribe their signature on that stone and the year they built the structure. That's still a current practice even today. See, the angel is revealing a future event with the Messiah. The branch will come and build a house whose architect is God. And the house will be founded upon an event when the sins of the land will, removed, will be removed in a single day. And what happened to Joshua in the vision is a foretaste of this very future moment. Fast forward to over 400 years from this vision. Joshua's namesake, Jesus, Yeshua, who is arguably the angel of Yahweh in human flesh. He comes to Jerusalem as the long foretold branch of David, the high priest, greater than that of Joshua, not going to offer sacrifices to the temple, but to give himself as the sin offering to die outside the city on the cross to remove the sins of the world in a single day. This was how God could legally pardon Joshua. This was how God could remove our filthy clothes and clothe us with pure garments. This was how God could forgive the sins of his people and restore back unto us our priestly ministry. 
by the sacrifice and substitute of his son who paid our penalty on the cross, becoming for all the source of eternal salvation unto all those who would obey him. On the cross, Jesus laid the foundation stone to the house that he is building in this world. A house whose God is the architect, whose kingdom is founded upon that day, a day in the past, one single day, when the sin of the world was removed in a single day. So today, anyone who would trust and look to the cross of Christ are summoned to be priests who are forgiven, who are forgiving, who are vested in commission for the work of reconciliation and forgiveness. Let us then follow our great high priest and live as a royal priesthood ourselves, having our sins forgiven just as we forgive the sins of others, being reconciled to God as we reconciled with one another, as we mediate the blessings and promises of heaven in this world to the end that the world may become God's temple and all creation is reconciled to God and God to creation. And on that day, everyone will invite their own neighbor to sit under their vine and fig tree in complete satisfaction and contentment, in complete harmony and shalom, and all will be at rest. To the glory and honor of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.